So many of you have had uh, the opportunity to serve with us at Touch Twice on several occasions. For some of you, it's maybe the first time you've seen what Touch Twice looks like. And uh, it's a great opportunity for us to serve uh, in our community with Bethesda Lutheran and just uh, serve people for the sake of Jesus. Um, Disregard the ad for 2014. For 2015, we need advocates, and uh, we hope that you will uh, consider being a part of that with us. Now, this is the main outreach of our growth group, so all of our growth groups are focused on this. You do not have to be in the growth group to serve at Touch Twice. You just need to sign up and be available to be there. Last week, I shared a vision point. We dream of a church known by our community for its loving attitude and commitment to serving others. That's who we are. That's who we want to become. That's who we are becoming. We want to have a reputation here by our loving attitude and our willingness to serve other people. Great opportunity uh, to, at Touch Twice on April 18th to serve our under-resourced community. Okay, today we're coming to John chapter 18 and starting a new series, John 18, 19, and 20, leading up to Easter. You know, Easter is in three weeks, April 5th. Can you see that? It's coming fast. To help us focus on Easter, we're going to look at John 18, 19, and 20. Um, You know, there are four books in the Bible. Yes, thank you, Bridge Kids, you are dismissed. I'm glad you just felt led to go. There are four books in the Bible that tell us about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different gospels, and they have four different focuses. John is probably my favorite of all. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, one day uh, in the future uh, going through the whole book of John, but we're just going to focus on the really less than 24-hour period of Jesus. John writes 20 to 30 years later than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He knew everything that was already recorded. He did not try to re-record everything that had been recorded. He records some of those main things, but John was an eyewitness, and he's going to bring in little details that other writers didn't pick up because they weren't standing in his shoes. Um, John brings an emphasis... Matthew, Mark, and Luke Luke bring an emphasis on the humanity of Christ, the servanthood of Christ, his connection with uh, the nation Israel, that he's the son of Abraham and the son of David. Mark focuses on his servanthood. Luke focuses on uh, presenting a gospel that Gentiles might understand. Well, John is going to focus on the deity of Christ, Jesus as the son of God. And one of the things that John does, he's going to give us from time to time, a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. Sort of like a little snapshot into who Jesus really might be. Um, So today we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 27. You're going to need to follow in a text. You're going to need a Bible in your hand. And it's on page uh, 752 or 1084 if you're using one of the Bridge Bibles. And I would encourage you to bring a Bible. You can always grab one as you come in. And we might have a few left. Uh, Yeah, we have a few. If you want to slip up a hand, we'd be glad to hand you one. Um, 
Now, we're going to just sort of parachute into a crisis here. It's hard sometimes just to go into a crisis and, what's going on here? A lot of stuff has happened, a lot of stuff is happening, and uh, how do we zero in? Here's the deal. It's nighttime. It's late. Several hours after supper, by 9 a.m., Jesus will be nailed to a cross. That's how serious it is. It's coming fast. A lot has happened already. They had had dinner together in the upper room. The disciples and Jesus, they are in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus' ministry was way up north in the land of Israel. Jesus was raised in Nazareth. His headquarters was in Capernaum, 70 miles north. Now he's down in Jerusalem, the most important city in the universe in the first century. It's going to be the most important city in the universe in the last century. They're in Jerusalem. They've, they've had their last supper together. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, I want you to do this to remember me. Judas left the room that night, and he went to betray him. Judas went to uh, the religious authorities, and he was given 30 pieces of silver in cash up front with the purpose, Judas, you need to turn Jesus over to us later in the evening. Peter got all excited about uh, what was happening and what Jesus was saying about his death. And Jesus said, or Peter said, um, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. And, and Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Um, on that occasion, uh, that night, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, you may remember. And he was teaching them that they needed to serve one another. Um, they left the upper room, and they went uh, across the Kedron Valley, and they spent some time in prayer. And Jesus, by the way, in John 17, is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. It's right before we get to John 18. Jesus has been praying. They get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does Jesus do? He, he gets away from the other disciples to pray. And he prays, Father, Uh, remove this cup from me. And he's talking about the coming judgment. He's asking God to take it away. But then he uh, concludes, Father, not my will, but your will. And he is willing to take what the Father is giving him. And he understands, and he's always understood, um, and he accepts this. So, now we're up to speed. John chapter 18, verse 1. Taken into custody. The place... Uh, John chapter 18, verse 1, when he had said these things, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. So the, the Kidron Valley is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, outside the city limits, outside of the city walls. Uh, there was an orchard there. It's really an olive grove. And he and his disciples went into it. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it's clearly spelled out in the other Gospels. Uh, what John is writing here is very accurate. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, one of the, this was their practice. It was a common practice. When they came to Jerusalem, this was the place where all the religious festivals were held. Jerusalem was a large city, but when there was a festival like the Passover, which was at hand right now, thousands and thousands of religious pilgrim, pilgrims came to Jerusalem to celebrate. This place was packed. There were no rooms anywhere. 
Jesus had done this on many occasions. They just went to the Garden of Gethsemane and they just camped out. Night after night, they would come to the city in the day and they'd go back to the garden at night, camp out, sleep under the stars. This was their habit. Betrayal by a friend, verse 2. Now Judas, the one who betrayed him, knew the place too because Jesus uh, met there many times with his disciples. Um, Verse 3, so Judas obtained a squad of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. They came to the orchard with lanterns and torches, torch, torches and weapons. Now, this is kind of a significant group of people that Judas has brought. It's not because Judas has authority. Judas has been given permission by the chief priests and the elders to take the temple police and uh, go to the Roman governor and get permission to release a detachment of soldiers. And the word that is used here in this NIV is um, a squad of soldiers, which doesn't tell us too much. But the word for detachment that was used was the word commonly used of one-tenth of a Roman legion. 6,000 soldiers in a legion um, commonly believed that This group was around 600 Roman soldiers strong, not to mention a few, a handful of um, temple police. And it's interesting, they came to the orchard with lanterns and torches. They're looking for the light of the world in the dark. And they're bringing lanterns and torches to find him as if he had been hidden from them. And uh, they come out and they come out with weapons because they've got to apprehend Jesus. But it was a good concern, because what if all of the crowds, Jesus was very popular, he was, he was followed by the crowds, and uh, what, if, what if a crowd of people tried to defend Jesus when they came to arrest him? So uh, they bring the, the large group. Observation here. Uh, Judas was duped into throwing away his relationship with Jesus. Now, you know, we have to just stop and ask. I know I haven't had a chance to develop this part of the story. Uh, Judas was a follower of Jesus for three years. I'm sure that he uh, decided to originally join the group because he had good intentions and and he wanted to do good and he wanted to be engaged in the things that Jesus was doing. But what happened to Judas that over time, he would be willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave, a human slave. That's, a, that's human trafficking. And, and, and Judas gave away his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. How did he get there? You know, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know, and here's the application, anyone can be deceived by the enemy, Satan, if he or she is not walking humbly with Christ, anybody can be, deceived, can be deceived. You can be deceived. I can be deceived if I'm not careful. Um, I've seen Christian husbands who made promises to their wives before God, before family, before their friends, walk away from their wives. They made this promise, and yet they became deceived, and they changed their whole perspective about the woman they were married to. I've seen Christian wives do the same thing, make promises, say they love God, and I've seen them walk away 
because they change their thinking about um, what they think about marriage, what they think about how important Jesus is, how God fits into their life. I've seen Christians walk away from their faith when they've made promises to God. They've promised to serve Christ. And it's just easy to get sloppy in your Christian walk and start to pay attention to messages that come from time, sometimes from our society. Sometimes the enemy's putting some really dumb ideas in our head. And, and if we're not careful, if we're not walking with Christ, if we're not um, evaluating our thinking by what Scripture says, it's easy to make dumb choices over time. You know, Judas did not have a moral blowout. You know, a blowout is when loud noise and sort of a crash and the tire comes down and the car is out of control. No, what happened to Judas was a long, slow leak before he went flat. It took time. It was little decisions. And the wheels came off. So let's keep going. Verses 4 through 9. We've got a lot to cover. The powerful encounter. I don't know if you've caught this before. Uh, John chapter 18, verse 4. Then Jesus, because he knew everything that was going to happen to him, came and asked them, who are you looking for? So this detachment comes out. It's in the night. They've got lanterns. They've got weapons. They're looking for Jesus in the garden. And he says, who are you looking for? Jesus just takes uh, the bull by the horns and he walks right into them. He doesn't slouch back. He's not passive. He's not going to see, let's see what happens here. He just walks right in. One of the things he's doing, he's going to deflect everything off of his disciples. He's going to stand out in front of them, and he's engaging. Who are you looking for? Look at verse 5. They reply, Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, what, what does that mean, Jesus, the Nazarene? Well, they're making a reference to Jesus' hometown. Jesus was raised in Nazareth up north, and uh, he's a Nazarene. And so they're looking for Jesus totally from a human perspective as a Nazarene. And um, so they, they, they say, Jesus a Nazarene. And he told them, I am he. Now, Judas, the one who betrayed him, was standing there with them. And Jesus says, I am he. Now, if you know the book of John, Jesus used this terminology on several occasions where he said, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. And he, now he says, I am he. What is he doing? He's making an identification with a very important concept in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 when God revealed his name to Moses. And he said, I am who sent you. God gave his name. It is, I am. So Jesus right here is revealing something about himself. I said John was going to give us some little clues here, and here it is. Look at verse 6. Now when Jesus said to, this, said to them, I am he, they retreated and fell to the ground. 600 plus? What do they do, stumble? Jesus said, I am he. And they just go, whoo, and fell backwards. You know, just for an instant, the glory of God was revealed in the presence of Jesus, and they could not stand in the awe of his presence. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know how this happened. And one of the things we see here about Jesus is he is in charge of this situation. 
They have come to arrest him. They're not going to take him anywhere unless he's willing to go. He could have destroyed the entire group there. He's just kind of being nice. I am he. And they, they fell to the ground. Look at verse 7. And by the way, just think about G- who is Jesus? It, they, they, they fell to the ground as he spoke. Well, we learn in the Bible that Jesus is the creator God. And in Genesis chapter 1, all he had to do was speak. And the universe began to come into existence by the spoken word of God. We go to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, when, when Jesus appears with all of his glory from heaven. All he does is speak, and judgment happens with his word. He speaks. Uh, Revelation, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that the universe is held together by the word of his power. All he has to do is speak. The, the universe is held together this instant by his authority, and all he has to do is speak, and we could disintegrate. Verse 7, then Jesus asked them again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus replied, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let the men go. So Jesus is coming out again, focuses on him. The focus is not on the disciples. Verse 9, and he said, uh, to fulfill the word of the, he had spoken, I have not lost a single one of those whom you gave me. Because that's what Jesus' intention was, was right at this very instant is to protect his followers. They could be guilty by association. At any minute, they could be arrested for hanging out with him. And it would be easy to engage them. That's exactly what we're going to see in verses 10 and 11. Jesus' overzealous friend. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, pulled it out and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off the right ear. Now, the slave's name was Malchus. By the way, John is the only one who tells us that This person's name is Malchus. He's the only one who knows. And one of the, what we're going to find out is probably the reason that he knows is because he has a relationship with Malchus outside of this event. He's been involved in Malchus's life before. But Peter, think about this. Sometimes called the foot in mouth disciple for good cause. Peter takes the sword. There are two swords among the disciples. They've, they've, they've counted before they've come tonight. They have two. That's great. And uh, how many soldiers? We don't know if there's exactly 600. We just know that this is a significant atta- detachment of troops with the Roman authority. And these are trained military guys. And I don't know the disciples are very well trained in the art of warfare But Peter, he takes out his sword and he struck the high priest's slave and he cut off his right ear. What is he thinking? What what, what will that accomplish? You know, the soldiers could destroy them all just just with one order. Fortunately, Jesus is going to take control. John doesn't record this. Luke does. Fortunately, Jesus is going to take control and he's going to reattach the ear and heal it right on the spot. That's going to save a lot of trouble. Verse 11, but, Peter said, uh, but Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away, back into the sheath. I'm, am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus understands what this is all about. He's being arrested. He's been taken. 
And now he's going to face, uh, he's going to face some trial. He's going to face uh, an execution. And, and he said, am I not to drink the cup? That cup that represents judgment. It represents the wrath of God to be poured out on sin. And that's what's going to happen at the crucifixion. God's holy wrath is going to judge the sin of the entire world. All sin for all time, even for people who have not been born yet. Okay? How could that be? And sometimes we just kind of forget this. It's because of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. His life is infinitely valuable. The Son of God. The creator God of the universe. His life is infinitely valuable. So when the heavenly Father received the price paid... The price paid was infinitely valuable, way more than the death penalty. Okay? That's why it still works today. That's why the offer is good today, because no amount of sin will ever overcome the value of Jesus' life given and paid for sin. Observation here about Peter. Peter's ego was likely bruised by Jesus' suggestion that he would deny him. Early in the evening, and here again, needing to build the case, early in the evening, Peter had stood up and said, Jesus, I will die for you. Jesus said, no, Peter, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times tonight. And so Peter sort of has something to prove. You know, hey, guys, I'm one of the leaders. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid. And so Peter goes out there, and he pulls out the sword, and he just chops off the guy's ear without thinking. And um, his ego was likely bruised by what Jesus said. Application, sometimes we make emotionally based commitments that we cannot keep, just like Peter did. Peter was all charged up, perhaps a little too much testosterone that evening, and um, he just gets silly in his thinking. And we can learn from Peter's silliness. Um, God would rather have us think about our commitments than just to make emotional decisions. Sometimes uh, things happen and we get moved by God and that's a good thing. But sometimes we make decisions that are just emotional and they're not really based on truth or facts and we really haven't thought through what the commitment might mean. And uh, it's just not wise, you know. I know we have right side brain people here and left side brain people here and it's not about who's better. It's about counting the cost and just thinking through what commitments are involved and that's what... Jesus would want from us. So emotional experiences aren't bad. Just be careful about making decisions that aren't based on truth, that aren't based on solid thinking. Another observation here, just as we look at this passage, uh, Jesus was arrested after he spent the night in prayer. Yeah, so what? Now think about this. He spent an um, a long time in prayer in the garden. He, we already know that he did all of John 17. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. He prayed for their unity. And uh, he was in a close relationship with his father. Would you would agree with that? Here's an application for us. Walking with God is not always safe. It wasn't necessarily safe for Jesus. He still got crucified even though he'd spent the evening in prayer. What do you think about that? That seemed right? I mean, shouldn't a good person have good things? 
No promises in the scriptures. No promises. We just need to be clear about that. Be careful what you teach your kids. John the Baptist, one of the godliest men in the New Testament. What happened to him? He was thrown in jail and he got his head cut off. Have you heard people who have suffered, who were walking with Christ? Yes, it happens. And all I'm saying is, we get the, it's wrong theology to think there's not going to be suffering if you're walking with Christ. It's wrong theology if you think, because I'm a good person, I'm, good things are going to happen. Sometimes they do. Sometimes you're blessed. Sometimes you have to go through trial and difficulty, and God uses those. Um, I remember as a brand new follower of Christ, one of the first stories I heard that to drive this home was uh, one that many of you uh, know of. Uh, Jim Elliott and four other Wycliffe missionaries sought to reach the Alca Indians in, Indians in Ecuador. They landed their plane on the Curry River, and they began to, they made a camp, and they began to develop relationships, and they brought gifts, and they gave to the Indians, and they sat down, and they shared some food together, and they did some activities, and it was going really well. And then out of a total surprise, and out of, the, out of nowhere, some from the tribe came back and just brutally murdered, murdered all five of the missionaries. It made Time magazine. It happened January 8, 1956, and it was all over the news. It was one of the first times that a Christian event where missionaries were killed that captured the news. Um, and walking with God is not always safe. And I just want to remind us of that. Okay, taken uh, to, religious, to a religious inquisition, verses 12 through 27. Verses 12 through 27. Uh, Matthew records something that John does not. We have Matthew 26, 56. But this happened so that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. John doesn't record, the, record this. But when Jesus got arrested, everybody cut out on him. They ran. And Jesus is now is alone with his captors. Um, the unofficial gathering, verses 12 and 13. Then the squad of soldiers with their commanding officer and the officers of the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and tied him up. So now they've got to tie up Jesus. They brought him first to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So what's so great about being the father-in-law of the high priest? Do you get any special favors? Uh, he's taking to Annas' house. Who is Annas? Annas was the high priest in Israel from the year 6 to the year 15 AD. This is secular history here. This is not, no, no, no special information from the Bible. It's secular history. Israel was only to have one high priest at a time in the nation. His headquarters were Jerusalem. He was to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. He was the most significant religious leader in Israel's um, whole perspective on, on how to worship God. And that was his key role, by the way, was to worship God. It was not to be a political figure. Annas had five sons. All five sons became high priests for a short period of time. Annas' son-in-law, 
became the high priest. And he is the high priest when Jesus will be crucified. Annas is a political figure. Annas is the most influential religious person in Israel. He is more influential than the high priest who is his son-in-law. His son-in-law gets advice from him. So he's kind of like the godfather of Israel if they had such a thing. Usually high priests were appointed for a lifetime. The Romans didn't like that, and so they would remove the high priest when they didn't like the high priest. Verse 14, we have an unusual prophecy. Now, it was Caiaphas, and John's going to do a little aside here. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jewish leaders that it was to their advantage that one man die for the people. So, uh, not Annas, but Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, makes this prophecy, and it goes back to John eleven forty-nine through 53. And here's what happened. This is what John is referring to. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, that year that Jesus was crucified, said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize, so they're having a little debate among the religious leaders. You do not realize that it is more to your advantage to have one man die for the for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Uh, Caiaphas is a a political leader. He's not just a religious leader. As a matter of fact, it seems like he doesn't ever think about being a religious leader. And he says, it's it's to your advantage, it's expedient that one man die for the people, that one man be a substitute for the others, that one man uh, be brutally put to death so that everybody around is afraid I believe that would be a fear tactic, not one that um, God uses to, to control people with fear like that. Verse 51, now he did not say this on his own, but because he was a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the Jewish nation. Next slide. And not for the Jewish nation only, but to gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered. So from that day, they planned together to kill him. Uh, they'd been on the lookout to get Jesus, most of Jesus' public ministry. And there was this prophecy, one die for the rest. Little did he know that this would become the substitutionary atonement. Christ died for the world. Christ died for us. Christ died for every person. Unusual uh, observation God used Caiaphas, an unbeliever, to speak uh, for him. God used Caiaphas, an unlikely person, not a godly leader, to speak for him. Application for us. Sometimes God may use an unbeliever to speak to us, to get our attention. Sometimes, and sometimes we Christians get the idea, well, I'm only going to listen if a Christian speaks to me or if if I hear it from a Christian, or if I read it in the Bible, otherwise I'm not going to pay attention. Sometimes God uses an unexpected person in our life to get our attention, to get us to stop and to to think and to evaluate our course of action. For example, you may be a college student, and you're a believer, and your parents aren't believers, and you don't like to pay attention to your parents. Sometimes God may use your parents to get your attention about what your responsibilities are. Uh, 
it might be your employer who is not a believer, and you are, and your employer notices that you're not doing all you're supposed to be doing at work. And you don't like that because you don't like your employer. Sometimes God is going to use your employer to get your attention so that you focus on being who God intended you to be. Could be a bill collector that God uses to get your attention. Maybe it's a husband who doesn't know Jesus and you do and you don't want to pay attention to what your husband says and yet God might use them to remind you of responsibility you have to God. So sometimes God may use an unbeliever. In verses 15 through 18, uh, we have a conflicted disciple. Simon Peter and another disciple followed them as they brought Jesus to Annas. Now the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, and he went with Jesus and into the high priest's courtyard. So it's Peter and another disciple. Peter and who? Who is the other disciple? Well, we believe it's John. Why? Well, one of the things is we're getting so many little details that only the author knows about. The other disciples weren't present. It was Peter and the other disciple. Peter knows his side of the story, and the other disciple knows his side of the story, and we have the Gospel of John. Um, we get little details here. Peter and another disciple followed them, and they brought Jesus to Annas. Now, the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest. John had relatives who knew the high priest. John was from a family business, likely a a profitable family business. John was in a little higher social class, if you want to say class. I'm sure they were aware of social class concepts. John had a higher social standard. He got, he got invited to more parties than Peter did. And there were different kinds of parties than Peter got invited to. John was an insider at the high priest's home. In fact, the people, the servants at the high priest's home recognized John. They knew John was a follower of Christ. And John is, is allowed in. And he went into the, to the courtyard. But Simon Peter, who is an outsider, left, was left standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, John, who was acquainted with the high priest, came out and spoke to the slave girl who watched the door and brought Peter inside. So John's going to use a little social networking and um, bring Peter up to speed and allow Peter to be on the inside of the courtyard. So this is a courtyard. There's an outside part. There's a courtyard, the fence around it. There's a gate to get in the courtyard, and there's a house. Jesus is going to be taken into the house. Peter is going to, be, is going to remain in the courtyard. The girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you're not one of the, this man's disciples too, are you? Well, Peter has a chance now. Now, this is... This is not, you know, Peter is out of his comfort zone. He is, this is the high priest's house. These people are in a different, they go to different parties than Peter does. And now a servant who is a female in the first century. And I'm sorry that 
she wouldn't have been viewed very highly. This is embarrassing to Peter. And he's afraid that they're going to recognize him and they're going to arrest him and do the same things that they're likely going to do to Jesus. You're not one of this man's disciples, are you? He replied, I am not. Wow, what just happened to Peter? Some switch went off in his head and he made a decision that the only the servant girl heard probably. He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the guards were standing around charcoal fire. They made outside warming themselves because it was cold. Look at this detail. There's a fire. Can you picture the fire? Can you picture the people standing around the fire? It was cold. And they were saying, they were as close to the fire as they could get. Peter was also standing there warming himself. He was cold and he was afraid. Not many people knew what was happening here. John and Peter know the story. Um, observation here, Jesus' friends let him down. Jesus' friends let him down. You ever had friends let you down? Application for us, there may be times that your friends let you down. You already knew that. Have you for, Jesus forgave his friends. Are there friends that have let you down, have offended you, have hurt you, have deeply wounded you? Have you forgiven them? The key is to forgive like Jesus, even if they don't deserve it. Verses 19 through 24, an an unauthorized interrogation. While Jesus was... While this was happening, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. The high, who are they talking about here? They're talking about Annas. They're calling him the high priest because that's how he was viewed. But there could only be one high priest, and he was Caiaphas. But that's exactly how it was viewed, and that's how John understands it, and he is recording it just like it was. The high priest questioned Jesus. Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus replied, I've spoken publicly to the world. I also taught in the synagogues and in the temple courts where all the Jewish people assembled together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those things. Ask those who heard what I said. They know what I said. You see, Annas is looking for a flaw in Jesus' presentation. He's trying to attack, trying to question, trying to interrogate, trying to get Jesus to mess up and uh, to look silly. When Jesus had said this, one of the high priest's officers who stood by struck him on the face and said, is that any way uh, to answer the high priest? By the way, that was illegal. The whole arrest was illegal. And now hitting Jesus in the face, hitting a prisoner that's not proven guilty was illegal according to the law of Moses. Jesus replied, if I said something wrong, confirm that. What is wrong? You know, bring your witnesses. But if I spoke correctly, why strike me? He's just reasoning it through. Then Anna sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Anna doesn't know what to do. Anna is a smart one. He's going to send him now to Caiaphas because Caiaphas is really the one that has the authority. But Anna is supposed to figure things out for everybody else. And he, so... The high priest Annas sends him to the high priest Caiaphas. Observation, important and powerful religious leaders disagreed with Jesus and his views and explanations. No big deal, you knew that. Important and powerful religious people 
disagreed with Jesus. Application for us, don't be surprised that at times important and powerful religious leaders may disagree with your views and your relationship with Jesus. And you already know that. It could be a pastor that you had growing up or something. Very influential in your life. And yet, not necessarily a true follower of Jesus. It may be your parents who have a different religious background than you do. You've come to faith. and Your parents have not followed that path. They're very, they have a lot of influence in your life and they have a lot of pressure in your life. You could be an antagonistic husband. That's a very powerful person for a wife who is a follower of Christ and her husband isn't. Sometimes it's friends. It may be a boss who's very influential. It may be a college professor that's very influential and is easy to put down your viewpoints. Okay, we come to the end. Monumental failure, verses 25 through 27. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing in the courtyard warming himself. They said to him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you, Peter? Peter denied it. I am not. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I see you in the orchard with him? Now, so this is going back to the arrest. This guy was present when Malchus got his ear cut off. He saw Peter firsthand. Did I see you in the orchard with him? Then Peter denied it again. Immediately the rooster crowed. This is a complicated situation when, when this denial happens because there was more than one person there. And, and at times, according to the other gospels, there were two or three people who responded back to Peter. And so it can look like there were more um, denials than there is. It's just how many voices do we hear? And the gospel writers record them just a little bit differently. The point is, Jesus said Peter would deny him three times, and Peter denied Jesus three times. Really sad thing, John doesn't note this, really sad thing in Luke 22, 61 and 62. Then the Lord turned. Somehow, Jesus was positioned in the house when they were bringing him that he sees Peter in the courtyard, and just then Peter looks up at Jesus. Peter, Jesus is um, a prisoner, and Peter is standing at the fire. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This all came crashing down on Peter. He failed Jesus miserably. And he just wept and wept and wept. Everything he stood for, he was crushed. Um, observation, a very strong, well-intentioned Christ follower named Peter disowned Jesus three times. Application, don't overstate your commitment to follow Christ like Peter did. It's just about thinking before you speak. Don't overstate. Don't make promises you can't keep. Be humble. Make an estimate of reality when you make a, a commitment. And then don't understate your relationship with Christ. Don't understate. Peter denied Jesus. He didn't speak up and just honestly admit. John was there too. 
John didn't deny Jesus. He wasn't put on the spot in the same way. I can just imagine John saying, yeah, sure. I know him. I don't know what would have happened, but don't underestimate your relationship with Christ. The key point is Peter was resilient after his failure. You know that. Peter was resilient. He wept bitterly. This is like the lowest point of his life. Have you reached the lowest point of your life yet, by the way? Some of you may have. Some of you yet to. This was the lowest point of Peter's life. He's going to be, you could say, when he, when he comes to his death, that, that's lower, but it won't be for Peter. Peter's going to go down in flames. He's going to go down in glory. Peter is going to be resilient. He is going to be restored by Jesus in John chapter 1, 21. Peter is going to become a leader of the church in Acts chapter 1 through 10. Peter is the key leader of the church, the first 10 chapters. In Acts chapter 2, it is Peter who gets up in Jerusalem. What, what about, what's Jerusalem? That's the street, that's the city that arrested Jesus. That's where Jesus was crucified. Within 50 days, Peter is going to get up in the streets and he's going to say, you crucified the Lord of glory. You need to repent and you need to believe in Jesus to be saved from the penalty of your sins. He got up and gave that message on the streets of Jerusalem without any fear and 3,000 people got saved. I would say that's being resilient. We don't know from the Bible what happened to Peter, but we know from history what happened to Peter. Peter was crucified in Rome. And as the story goes, I have no reason, historical evidence, it's not in the Bible, but I have no reason to doubt the historical aspect of this. When they came to crucify Peter, Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. I want to be crucified upside down. So they crucified him upside down. You can say that's a low point, not for Peter. He went out in flames. He honored Jesus in his death. So that, we are off. We are started. We are on the road to the cross. Next week, we're going to pick up the, the trial and uh, the senten sentencing before well, we come to the crucifixion. So let's stand. I'd like to pray. Father, we are reminded today of what happened to Jesus and his arrest and the dark night that that was, and yet uh, it wasn't a loss for Jesus and things weren't out of control, but things were happening as you had planned, things were happening as Jesus embraced. We see Jesus' followers fearful and running, Peter denying Jesus, Judas betraying Jesus. And God, I just thank you for the hope we have that when we have failed, just like Peter or even like Judas, there is hope for us to repent, to turn to you, to ask for forgiveness if it's a Christ follower, to be fully restored. If we're not a Christ follower, that we can uh, be born again and have our sins forgiven. Thank you for that hope. And God, it's my prayer uh, for this room that if there are people here this morning that know uh, they have faced a big failure in their walk with God, that they would just be open and willing 
to be humble before you, to, to be honest, to admit it, to confess sin, and to ask you for forgiveness, to be restored, to be resilient, and to continue the walk with Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.